This is BWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hello, this is Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Thank you for listening to our BWLS podcast series. As always, we ask you to log on to www.wildmedu.org to see what other programs and other resources are available for you to learn wilderness medicine. We want to talk about uh, pain management in the wilderness. Pain management in the wilderness is obviously going to be a lot different uh, than it is in the front country for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is because um, normally in the front country you have access to all sorts of uh, pain relief, including getting into your own bed and being in your own surrounding and uh, taking uh, the, the pills that you have. When you get out of the back country, uh, you're going to be in a foreign environment. And, and uh, when you get into these austere places, um, anxieties increase, physical activity increases. And one of the things that happens is that if, if walking or moving or carrying a backpack exacerbates the pain, then you, you have to do that. Uh, and whereas at home you can get yourself into a comfortable position, something where anxiety is less. And so pain in the backcountry gets to be uh, just a much bigger problem for a whole variety of reasons. Which leads to a, a, a real interesting issue about uh, humans who suffer pain, and that is humans, unlike animals generally, uh, suffer with pain. What does that mean? Well, we often hear people say, uh, well, my brother has a high tolerance for pain, or I have a low tolerance for pain. Um, You know, uh, scientists and physicians, and a lot of research has been done to try and figure out how to quantify pain. But if you ask someone that has pain, they'll say it's at 10 over 10, or it's excruciating pain. Excruciating pain can be tiny to some and horrible to another. It's very hard to quantify pain. One of the reasons for that is because of what we call suffering. Uh, people, uh, especially if there's a lot of emotion involved, will suffer with their pain as opposed to just having the pain. And this becomes a big issue uh, in backcountry medicine because, as we stated, people are in a heightened state of anxiety typically anyway, uh, uh, being away from home or having to backpack or being on a river trip or climbing or being hot or cold or trapped and having to face uh, consequences that they're not normally familiar with. And now you put pain on them, and uh, almost always they will suffer with the pain. And that leads uh, uh, next to uh, a way that you can alleviate pain in the backcountry, and that is to help people to alleviate their suffering. Well, And what do we mean by that? Well, basically, it is to comfort them, to reassure them, to help them to know that, the, the pain that they're having for whatever reason will go away, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to solve it, we're going to get them home, to calm them down in whatever way that, that you need to have. There are a lot of studies, there are a lot of cases where people, for example, have had just horrible headaches, and the headaches just continue and persist, and then they get an MRI scan, and it shows that there is nothing in their brain that is wrong, and the pain either completely goes away or it's down to where it's completely manageable. And that is because you've gotten rid of the anxiety and from their suffering. And this is a very important tool in backcountry medicine, is reassurance, calming people in any situation for a variety of reasons, of course. But to help to manage pain is to get rid of their suffering. 
to help manage uh, pain in uh, any person, whether you're in the wilderness, backcountry, austere environment, or at home, is to understand why we have pain. Why do uh, some living things have pain and others don't? For example, trees, bushes, lawn uh, don't suffer pain. A fire will come through a forest and burn a tree down, and the tree won't uh, run or move. Lawn, plants, that's the same thing. The nervous system is there for movement. Our brains are largely large in humans because of motion of our fingers, our mouths, our legs. All of the functions of our vital organs that move, uh, the brain controls them. The human thumb has a disproportionate amount of uh, uh, size of, uh, in the brain uh, because of the complex motion that it has compared to other muscles and other joints. Uh, motion is the purpose of the brain, and therefore uh, nerves and axons run everywhere. It is because of motion. And in order to trigger that motion, we have those sensations, and primarily that of what we're talking about today, and that is of pain. Pain uh, warns uh, the, the, the creatures that have a nervous system to move, uh, to get out of harm's way. And hence, uh, we, we have that uh, ability to move and get away from pain. Now, one of the interesting aspects about pain in most cases is it tends to outlast its usefulness. For example, you touch a hot stove or you're out camping and you touch a Dutch oven and it burns your fingers. The pain will persist for a long time. The warning system has been given, but uh, it persists. And uh, herein lies one of the great problems. Because of the fact that pain outlasts its usefulness and warning, the body helps to mitigate pain. The body takes two ways to help us with the management of that prolonged pain. The first one is what we call the endorphins, or these endogenous morphines. These weren't uh, discovered until generally recently, and it had to do with the uh, way opioids were uh, becoming so prominent in the world And there was a question as to why uh, uh, people uh, were becoming addicted. And when they started looking at brain tissue, they found that there were were uh, receptors to opioids. And that became a curious question as to why there would be receptors for narcotics in our brains. Certainly the brains didn't evolve uh, so that we could become sensitive to opioids. And it was then... Uh, that they determined that there were endogenous opioids, which they called endogenous morphines in the brain, and that the receptors responded to those. These endogenous morphines, or endorphins, uh, are uh, the, uh, the receptors to those are found in the pain centers. And so when someone is injured, uh, you get this uh, huge release of endorphins, which coat the axons and the end plate to mitigate pain. The thought is is that this would help with survival. For example, if you fell off a cliff or you're out hunting or you were attacked and you got away, pain would not be the limiting factor to survival. And endorphins 
uh, interestingly enough, will persist for a long time, uh, for hours or even days. Uh, we see it in modern sports where people are injured and then a football player will run a, 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 uh, the, a touchdown not knowing that an arm is broken because the pain is gone. And a lot of times from the backcountry, there'll be something like a bear attack and someone who has been mauled by a bear will come to safety and to help, and they will be asked, do you hurt? And they'll say, no, I really don't hurt. And then when they get to a hospital, then the pain as the, uh, just uh, explodes uh, because the endorphins aren't there. So one of the things that can happen in the backcountry, and you'll see and to be aware of, is that someone may have a greater injury or a more severe injury than the pain will indicate primarily because of these endorphins. However, those can be used to the advantage of an uh, in, in evacuation or if you're keeping someone there to know that endorphins can help you. Now, the second way that the body helps to mitigate pain is what we call distraction. The brain is like a, a, a railroad station and with only a couple of tracks going into it, whereas you have many, many trains trying to get into it. It will only accept a couple of those trains at a time, uh, like a railroad station. And so uh, distraction then becomes a huge way to mitigate pain. Uh, this, a lot of this data has come out of uh, the uh, dentistry work in that a dentist can inject a gum with lidocaine and jiggle the, the uh, cheek uh, near the area where they're injecting the lidocaine, and the patient won't even feel the injection. It's also been found in dental literature that dentists will have them wiggle toes, jiggle the cheek, or have them wiggle their fingers, and that also will mitigate the, the pain from the injection of the lidocaine. That is to say that the jiggling of the toes or fingers or jiggling of the cheek will be a bigger stimulus than the needle itself, and therefore the pain will be mitigated. Distraction is used uh, uh, all the time. Ice is probably the, be the best example of distraction. We always say put ice on it and numb it up. Ice doesn't get rid of pain. It distracts the pain. The cold feeling or that sensation is a bigger sensation than the pain. So another way to mitigate pain in the backcountry is distraction and using things like ice. Ice uh, over a wound or over a burn or over a joint will distract the pain and uh, very effectively. And we have another podcast where you have to be careful uh, on injuries that you don't over-ice something because you'll constrict blood supply. However, for the short time and the, and the time needed to get someone out of the backcountry or to rid them of pain, that it's an appropriate time. Uh, another way is to, if someone has, you think, maybe a broken arm, is to scratch their other arm or to talk to them about their family or about a, a pleasant experience and get them talking to distract the brain. That will help with the pain. Have them wiggle their toes or you scratch their feet uh, if a hand or an arm is injured. Those kinds of techniques are insanely effective at uh, the discrimination or at uh, distraction of pain. And what's interesting is we do a lot of that. For example, uh, dry needling. One of, the way, one of the several ways that dry needling works is by distraction, distraction of the, the nerve ends. Uh, when we put on perfume and cologne, that is a distraction. Also, it doesn't get rid of the smell. It just distracts the smell. The one smell is bigger than the other. So keep distraction in mind in ways that if someone's having pain that you can distract the brain by putting a larger stimulus in. 
This is an important thing to know also when you're evaluating neck pain. Because if you're trying to evaluate neck pain and if they say their neck doesn't hurt and they have uh, two broken arms, it may be that they still have a broken neck, but the pain from the arms is distracting the pain from the neck. So one of the ways and one of the reasons in clearing a neck is you have to make sure there aren't any significant distracting injuries that would distract the brain uh, from the pain uh, in the neck. So remember endorphins and remember uh, th this distraction as a way of mitigating pain in the backcountry, which are very, very effective. So these are the first three ways of uh, mitigating pain. One is to ease suffering because suffering is an amazing phenomenon in primarily in humans that cause people's pain to exacerbate even for an unknown reason. And the other is uh, endorphins and to utilize that phenomenon in helping in the management of pain. And then finally, distraction. Those are ways that are ins ins insanely useful in the backcountry to uh, manage pain, um, where in the front country, we don't use those as much, but in the backcountry, they're uh, absolutely uh, essential. There, the other uh, uh, obvious way in the backcountry to uh, alleviate pain is to get rid of the, uh, the cause of the pain if you can. For example, and one of the most common things we see in backcountry medicine is a burn is having a burn where you touch something hot. So putting cool water or ice for a short time on a burn will get rid of the pain that way. Or, for example, if you've broken a, an arm, uh, uh, you cannot necessarily uh, correct that completely, but you can either reduce it if you feel comfortable or, or a finger if you feel comfortable reducing. That will get rid of pain. And uh, you can splint it because motion of a, a broken arm or a leg will cause pain. Uh, there's uh, many stories, and one came to us on Cataract Canyon, where a 51-year-old a, a man uh, dislocated uh, his left shoulder in one of the rapids in the United States on a big rapid. The shoulder was dislocated, uh, and the pain was insane. But the people on the raft were able to get to shore and reduce the, the, the break, and, or the, the uh, dislocation, and thus they were able to uh, reduce the pain. So if you have a splinter and you can remove that, or if you have something in the eye that is causing pain, you can remove that, then you can mitigate the pain by reducing or eliminating the cause of the pain. Now, that may not be possible, but eliminating or reducing the uh, cause of the pain in the backcountry is another insanely effective way at managing the pain. Uh, in the backcountry. So uh, that ultimately uh, ha leads to the question of uh, what is the cause of the pain. But those kinds of things, uh, splinting, uh, removing the heat, removing a splinter, getting something out of the eye, uh, and the list goes on of, of ways of managing the pain that way. Now, uh, and the last way, uh, uh, or not say the last, but an important way of managing pain, of course, is uh, with medicine. The uh, literature is replete of just e enormous uh, methods of, uh, of uh, chemicals that you can put in the body to mitigate or even get rid of pain. Now, what you give somebody is going to determine be determined by what is causing the pain and how severe the pain is. 
and after you've evaluated the pain, decide whether you and the patient whether you're going to be able to give them uh, something that will uh, end and or mitigate their pain. And you always have to be careful. For example, if somebody is having a heart attack, you don't want to give them morphine or a narcotic, which will get rid of the pain because one of the ways you evaluate a uh, heart attack is if you can get rid of it in another way. Although morphine is in the protocol, it's down the list. You try to get rid of the pain uh, first uh, before uh, alleviating the pain. And that gets to be a little complicated, but nevertheless, you have to be uh, careful with that. So as we go through the list of things, uh, of medicines that you can give people with pain, we always start with ibuprofen. It really is the champion of pain relief. Literally tens and tens and tens of thousands of studies of medicines and compounds have tried to knock ibuprofen off the, the mountain peak, and it, they've been unable to do so. Ibuprofen, which is a prostaglandin inhibitor, just time and time again has been shown generally to relieve most types of pain. So ibuprofen needs to be something in your kit. Of course, there are contraindications. There are reasons you don't give it. Give it too much, it can cause stomach problems. It can be uh, hard for the kid- kidneys to clear. So you have to be careful with it, but nevertheless, ibuprofen is generally very safe and also very effective. Now, out of the dental literature in the last couple of years has come some very remarkable data that isn't getting wide uh, dissemination as it should, and that is the combination of ibuprofen and Tylenol is insanely effective at getting rid of tooth pain. But it's also good at getting rid of any pain. You can buy preparations now that have ibuprofen and Tylenol together. This becomes a very effective method. Now, if somebody cannot take ibuprofen, but they can take Tylenol, it gives you the idea that you can carry them in two different bottles. But you can't get the preparation that they're combined, and that's over-the-counter. This should be uh, in everyone's first aid kit, ibuprofen, Tylenol, either separate or combined, and this should be, as far as medication treatment, should be first-line therapy for uh, any pain relief. Now, it's not going to get rid of all some pains, like, but it, but it will get rid of a lot of pain, especially things like tooth pain uh, and uh, burns and scrapes and joint pain and aches. The anti-inflammatory effects and the mitigating effects of Tylenol cannot be overstated, and that should be your first. Now, uh, second, and you start moving up now into mild narcotics like Tylenol. And then you can go up into the hydrocodones and the oxycodones. And uh, then you have to make a decision if you want to take uh, narcotics uh, on a trip with you. And if there's the potential of abuse from uh, the people who are going to uh, take it. If you're going to a remote place, you should have narcotics. And you can get those from a licensed clinician who can prescribe them and keep them in your kit for the more severe pains. Uh, some pain in the backcountry is going to be very severe. Someone could get a, everything from a kidney stone to a fracture uh, or a severe burn. That, and while they're being evacuated or while you're getting them out, you may need to give them narcotics. It will require that somebody who is uh, trained t- uh, to give narcotics or knows about them uh, to take them. And that's going to be a decision that you're going to have to make uh, about what and where and, and your level of training and comfort. But again, ibuprofen and Tylenol are insanely very effective. Uh, Codeine, which is a mild narcotic, 
uh, is also effective. And then your decision as to where you're going and for the probability of what you want. And, and to get a physician, if you're, uh, or if you are one, to get someone to uh, write you uh, for that. Now, the other thing about uh, pain in management in the backcountry is this. A lot of people are aware that they have pain, migraine headaches, gallstone, kidney stones, um, a whole variety of things. That they know that they're going to get backache. They will know what works for them and what doesn't. So uh, when you go out on a trip, and if you are the director or even if not, suggest that people who are expecting pain to have their own pain management, just like their own first aid kits. People will know what their pain uh, uh, probability or possibility is, and they need to be able to manage that. So uh, be aware of that and have them take their own. And then finally, and last but not least, is the evaluation of pain. Pain is never uh, uh, good, but it does warn us. Again, it's there because of our uh, ability to move. And so uh, we have very exquisite pain. And remember the idea that some people suffer and some people don't. So when you evaluate pain, the very first thing you have to uh, ask, is it life-threatening and does it require evacuation? Someone's fallen and they've broken multiple bones and you're going to evacuate them. Uh, you just have to do what you can until help comes or you're going to get them out. If it's uh, chest pain and you suspect an aneurysm or a heart attack, that's uh, yeah, a life-threatening condition. If it's uh, abdominal pain that you're uncomfortable with and you're following the ap- appropriate guidelines, uh, you may not want to get rid of the pain until you get to help, until uh, they can evaluate the pain. Some pains uh, you're not going to be able to help, such as an ectopic pregnancy. If you suspect someone has pain from an ectopic pregnancy, pain management is the last thing on your mind. You want to get them out as quickly and as rapidly as possible. So whether it's life-threatening or not, whether it's just going to keep them from being able to continue on the trip or not, they're going to need to be evacuated, or if if just a few hours is going to get rid of the pain, and the cause of the pain, and how serious is the injury. So determining the MOI, or the mechanism of injury, determining the NOI, the nature of the illness, and following the MARCH protocol becomes just insanely uh, important. And it must also be remembered that patients will typically know about their own pain. So use the techniques that we have as you begin to evaluate pain, its cause, its origin, whether it's going to Uh, prevent them from participating in the trip or whether it's life-threatening or not and then how you're going to management use the tools that we've discussed here today and you should be able to manage uh, pain very effectively in the backcountry this ends the podcast on the management of pain in the backcountry and again as always we thank you for listening